All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burnt incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry host and worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel 
had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. This is the end of this morning's reading. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, this is a difficult passage from your word. Help us to understand it in its Old Testament context and to heed its warnings to us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess we're all probably aware of the tagline of the Alpha course, what is the meaning of life? There is a related but perhaps more uh, challenging question, what makes life worth living? Which should concern us all. I want you to take a moment or two to see if you can answer that question for yourselves. It's all right, I'm not going to ask you what your response is, but just let's take 20 seconds just to think, what makes life worth living for me? I think for many of us, life is made up of a series of short-term goals and hopefully achievements. It could be a successful career or making a fortune on the stock market for some or a happy marriage with children and grandchildren. It could be the fulfillment of some lifetime ambition, say to write a novel, climb all the Monroes in Scotland or to visit the Great Barrier Reef. The list of personal hopes and ambitions is probably endless, and many of them are good in themselves, and their fulfillment leads to great personal satisfaction. So what is your answer to the question? The reason for asking it will, I hope, become clear later in the sermon. Let's now turn to the passage from 1 Kings, that is 2 Kings that has just been read for us. Not, I suspect, a passage to exactly warm our hearts. We need to understand the context first, and let me try and keep it very brief. After the reigns of David and Solomon, the Old Testament people of God were divided into two kingdoms with separate rulers and territories. The northern kingdom, slightly confusingly called Israel, had its capital at Samaria, whereas the southern kingdom, called Judah, kept the old capital at Jerusalem. In respect of the worship of the Lord, Judah always looked down on Israel, largely because Judah still had Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, and it saw itself as the center of orthodox worship and conduct, whereas the northern kingdom of Israel had invented its own centers of worship and was accused of not being faithful to the Lord's teaching. 
The year 722 BC saw the total destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrian Empire, as summarized in the verses just before the passage read to us from 2 Kings 17. So let me just read those to you. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege for it, to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. The southern kingdom survived for another 136 years until 586 BC, when it in turn was devastated and Jerusalem captured and destroyed, this time by the Babylonians. On both occasions, a large swathe of the population was deported and resettled elsewhere in the respective empires. And that was a typical measure in the ancient Near East to ensure that the captured territories did not regroup and rebel against their overlords. And this was the exile, which became a significant event in the thinking of those resettled in Babylon, and the experience became pivotal in their self-understanding of God's purposes for them. This passage, which has just been read to us by Albert, not only reports the overthrow and exile of the northern kingdom Israel, it also seeks to understand it. In the blunt words of the section heading in the New International Version, Israel exiled because of sin. So we begin in verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had rebelled against the Lord their God. And the writer lists three failings of God's people in these verses. They worshipped other gods, verse 7. They created idols, verse 12. And in consequence, they were disobedient in respect to the commands and decrees of the law, verse 15. And, to make it worse, in all these respects, they followed the practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them from the land, verse 8. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. Let's look at these three failings in turn. And the first failing, apostasy, that is a deliberate turning away from Yahweh to worship other gods, was obviously in clear contravention of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Specifically, the writer tells us that the people actively pursued the worship of other gods. Look again at verses 9 to 11. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They actively pursued the worship of other gods. And the obvious question is, why? Why should they do that? We don't, of course, know what was going on in their minds. But it seems clear from other evidence that the core of that kind of worship in the ancient Near East was fertility rites. And that makes a lot of sense. Since it's a largely agricultural economy, 
It relies on good crops and fertile animals. It is therefore at the mercy of the weather and animal diseases and is very insecure. And if your belief is that success depends on the gods of the land, then it makes very good sense to seek their favor in ensuring a good outcome. Now, their second failing was the worship of idols. The second commandment reads, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Our passage refers to two idols in the shape of calves, that's verse 18, and more generally to sacred stones and Asherah poles. Stones were possibly simple representations of the god Baal. The poles were associated with his consort, the goddess Ashtoreth, who was a goddess of great beauty associated with sex and fertility. So why did the Israelites, in clear contravention of the second commandment, compound their apostasy by making physical representations of pagan gods? Now, evidently, idols are a means to focus the attention and the devotion of the worshippers. But they have another very attractive feature. They are entirely the creations of their sculptors, who can thus exercise control over them. So the underlying narrative is like this. We made you, and therefore we can manipulate you to give us what we want. Good harvests, fertile animals, absence of disease, and natural disasters, and protection from hostile neighbors. So before we become too judgmental, I think we need to recognize it all made rather good sense. And then their third failing was a failure to heed God's warnings to observe the requirements of his law. We explored that theme in our last sermon when we looked at Isaiah 1, the prophet's condemnation of Judah for its failure to be a holy nation, resulting in the corruption of national life. Note that the failures of the people in this passage are described as the result of deliberate choices to ignore God. Look at verse 15, the first part of verse 15. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he'd made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols. It was not one of those things. This was deliberate. Now, it's very easy for us to reflect on this condemnation of the Israelites and to dismiss it as far from our experience as the New Testament people of God. We don't worship other gods. We don't make idols. But that dismissal could be too hasty. We need to heed some words of Martin Luther in his longer catechism. The question which was put to the catechized was, what constitutes a god? And Luther's response was, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your god. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your god. So a god is that which one loves, trusts, and serves above all else. Hence the question which we explored at the beginning of this sermon. 
what makes our lives worthwhile. On Luther's definition of the list of modern gods, it's not hard to construct. It would include wealth, possessions, sex, work, reputation, family, fitness, education, exercise of power. Now, don't misunderstand me. These things are not wrong in themselves. Indeed, many can be very positive in contributing to our flourishing. But if the heart clings to and relies upon them, they have become a god. There is another feature of the worship of false gods we need to address. For the Old Testament people of God, the worship of idols had a social dimension. No doubt they encouraged one another to attend pagan, high worship, pagan worship in high places and to participate actively in the rites performed. Why? Because failure to participate could be interpreted as undermining the efficacy of the rites and would lead to social ostracism. It would have been very hard to remain entirely faithful to Yahweh when others were not. In the same way, as the New Testament people of God, we can easily lead one another to worship the other gods listed previously, regarding them as socially acceptable patterns of living. I recall a conversation with a Tanzanian clergyman on his first visit to the UK back in the 1970s. He recounted his astonishment at the pattern of life adopted by the Christians in a very well-known church. To his mind, with his background, their lifestyle sat very uneasily with their commitment to Jesus. It probably never crossed their minds to question it. Why? Because they all lived in exactly the same way. Finally, did you notice in verse 15 the consequence of the people's apostasy? They followed worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. In what sense were they worthless? They were no longer living as God's chosen people, a holy nation, and a light to the nations. So they had ceased to partner with God in his great project to rescue humankind. And that takes us to exile. For the writer of one, <clears throat> 1 and 2 Kings, the consequence of apostasy in turning to idols was exile. The northern kingdom of Israel was exiled to Assyria and later the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon. Now one can imagine an interpretation of these events that might have been given by the current BBC Middle East editor, uh, Jeremy Byrne. I'm afraid I can't do the accent, but it might run like this. Israel and Judah have the misfortune to be two small states that lie in the path of interaction between the empires to the north, first Assyria and then Babylon, and Egypt to the south. Both lie on the major trading routes between Africa and Asia, and control of those routes is vital to the interests of the major powers. Both states are weak without the military firepower of their neighbors. So a completely independent foreign policy is out of the question. The only realistic option is accepting the control of one of their neighbors, paying tribute 
and trying to keep a low profile. What they cannot do is to try to play an independent game. Sometimes trying to go it alone, sometimes trying to put together an alliance of all their smaller neighbors, sometimes allying themselves with one of the major powers. They have tried that for short-term gain too often and eventually have been crushed by the regional powers. We might want to add to Jeremy Bowen's analysis that by their apostasy, they had forfeited the protection that Yahweh had promised them under the covenant. Now, this is the hard bit. For the writer of Kings, exile was to be interpreted as a judgment on the people. You may have noticed the description of the events, verse 18. The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Verse 20, the Lord thrust them from his presence. And verse 23, the Lord removed them from his presence. There are very clear echoes here of the narrative of the fall in Genesis 3, where we read that the Lord banished the human couple from the Garden of Eden. Indeed, it says the Lord drove them out. Now, settling God's people in the land was intended to give them a new opportunity to live in obedience to God under the covenant, a vocation which Adam and Eve had signally failed to fulfill in Eden. When they failed, that is the Old Testament people of God failed, they too were driven out. So is the purpose of exile simply to punish them for their apostasy and idolatry? It's certainly true that we cannot escape that in the Old Testament there is an understanding of God as a holy God who executes judgment on wrongdoers as sin accumulates, that judgment falls on a whole nation or culture. But there is no immediate correlation between sin and judgment. Why? Because of God's compassion on the sinner. Judgment is always God's last resort. And exile comes only after multiple warnings through the prophets. Moreover, judgment is accompanied by grace, the possibility of a new start. In the case of Judah, the exile in Babylon gave time for the people to reflect on their relationship with God. We will have more on that in the sermon at the beginning of March when we will explore Jeremiah 31. So the question is, is there a parallel dynamic for the New Testament people of God? That is us. We've already seen that the worship of false gods can easily ensnare Christian people, even a whole church. When their hearts are set on things that, not in the, that are not in themselves wrong, but because the center of their life and action. And the outcome is a loss of confidence in God and an increasing distancing from obedience to his purpose for our lives. This distancing is perhaps understood as a return into exile. That exile, which is the state of all of us, 
who in solidarity with Adam and Eve are alienated from God. We cannot expect to enjoy a close relationship with God if in our hearts we are worshipping other gods. That is the point at which, spiritually at least, our lives begin to fall apart. We lack peace and become anxious. We need to recognize that without Christ at the center of our lives, our lives lack purpose. We become literally worthless in our service of Christ. But our communion service this morning reminds us that however far we have strayed from Christ, his grace is always sufficient to bring us back. There is hope of restoration after exile. Let's use a prayer we sometimes pray after communion, which expresses this far better than I ever could. I've amended it slightly to fit the theme. So let's pray. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, in exile, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace, and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give life to the world. So as your people, we can work with you in your great project to rescue humankind. Keep us firm in the hope you have set before us, so we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.